Welcome to the Nashville Women's Health Podcast. This podcast was created as a way to provide education and connection to the women of Middle Tennessee. My goal is to connect you with local women's health and fitness providers so you know what services are available in your area. I am your host, Amy Bailey. I'm a local women's health physical therapist, yoga instructor, and life coach. Thank you for joining the podcast and being a part of this amazing community. guys, welcome to another edition of the Women's Health Podcast. It's your host, Amy Bailey, and I wanted to tell y'all about this really cool summit that is, if you're a healthcare professional, PESI is doing a Women's Health Summit on May 19th and 20th. So I just kind of wanted to go through one of the topics that I'm talking about. I'm presenting two courses at this summit, but it's full of awesome speakers who are just passionate about women's health. And so I'm doing um, two talks on the 19th. One is on yoga and pelvic health, and the other one is on perimenopause. And that's what I wanted to talk to you to uh, talk about today is just perimenopause and how it is just skipped over in a lot of resources and educational forums. I feel like, you know, pregnancy and postpartum has hit really hard and then menopause, but a lot of people don't understand that perimenopause is actually what leads us into menopause. It is not a point in time, but kind of a phase. And it usually can last anywhere from four to 10 years, roughly, before someone actually hits menopause. And so we're going to go through this a little bit today, just because I think it's really a skipped over part of education. And I would love for y'all to just understand that way you're just better educated when this time of your life comes and it will come. It is our third phase of life. And if we live long enough, we're all going to go through perimenopause and menopause and I don't want y'all to be scared of it. I don't want this to be like, oh, I can't believe I'm getting older. Oh, I can't believe I'm going to be in menopause. I want us to celebrate this because we still have a third of our life left once we hit menopause. So there's still a big chunk of our life that we need to thrive in and feel good about and not fear and not shut down, but really celebrate it. And for women, this means conquering our self-health, (laughs) self-help. It also means our nutrition, our exercise, And just community for women, finding support is really important. That's how we thrive as humans. So we are not little men. We are actually separate beings that have a whole different hormonal structure and physiological structure. So just understanding kind of what we go through and how how we can better prepare for it. Excuse me. I'm choking on a frog here. Okay, so one of the big things I think is we need to understand our hormones in general. And I'm not going to do a deep dive here on hormones, but one of the things that I really stress to all my clients is period tracking. If you do not track your monthly cycle, please start doing it. There are several free apps to do this. And you can pay for some apps, but I feel like they go too deep unless you are struggling with fertility maybe or trying to get pregnant Um, I don't feel like you need to pay for the app. You don't have to track every sign and symptom, but if you just track your first and last day of your period, a lot of these apps will show you when you're supposed to ovulate. It will also show you um, when to expect your period because that kind of stinks if you're like not prepared for it and all of a sudden there you are. So I think just tracking your period, it gives us a really good gauge of how our health is doing. So you'll know what your regular is and what is irregular. And then you can kind of make sense of that. Like, oh, 
my period was not regular this month. Oh, but I've been really stressed or I had this huge presentation at work or my kids were sick. And you're like, oh, that's probably the reason why my period was a little bit irregular and you know not to worry about it. Um, I have a pretty great quote here from Brene Brown just talking about midlife. And it says, people may call what happens in midlife a crisis, but it's not. It's an unraveling, a time when you feel a desperate pull to live the life you want to live, not the one you're supposed to live, to let go of who you think you are supposed to be and to embrace who you are. And I think I've seen that in my own life. Just as I get older, I am less likely to care what other people think. Um, I tend to be a people pleaser, and I think I've found more of who I am in my own self. And I think that's something we find with experience and aging. And I think it's really great that we should not look at it as a crisis, but it's something where we are really coming into our own and we should celebrate that. Um, so I'm just kind of going through some of my slides here and I love just some funny quotes from Pinterest. And this one is just perimenopause humor for you. Um, still to come, menopause, because nature decided that pregnancy, labor, delivery, breastfeeding, stretch marks, saggy boobs, and cellulite wasn't punishment enough. So that just kind of goes back to this negative view of what we have of menopause, that we're going to have all these terrible symptoms, we're going to feel hot all the time, we're going to get fat and lazy, and that's not what it has to be. So what does the woman look like who's in perimenopause, and how can we prepare for that stage? You know, generally women hit this perimenopause stage in their 40s, sometimes as early as 35. So sometimes you go straight from having babies into perimenopause, which is kind of confusing, I think, to women because we think we think of menopause as like something that happens to 50 and 60-year-olds when really the transition can start as early as 35. So what does that mean? Like, think about that. Roll that around in your head. Like, what do you typically think about when you think of menopause? I mean, what, do you, what does that woman look like to you in your head? Are they, like I had mentioned earlier, are they hot? Are they out of shape? Are they just older in general? Or do you think of them as that busy soccer mom who's running all over town? Because that's really what perimenopause looks like. It really looks like that woman who now has maybe children anywhere from age two to college age, really. And sometimes this happens very quickly because we're a lot of women are waiting they're a little bit older than they used to to have children. So if you're having your first child at 30 and then you're starting perimenopause in 35, you may have a five-year-old. You may have a two-year-old, you know? So just understanding when some of these changes happen in your life, they are probably hormone-related, but they might be leading you into our next phase of life. So I have just some examples of what um, someone might look like that is in perimenopause. Picture that 44-year-old woman who's married. She may own her own business. She has three kids. You know, they're busy. She runs for exercise. She still has regular periods, but she doesn't sleep well and she's fatigued. That could be one example of what someone looks like in perimenopause. Another example might be someone who's 41, not married, no children, works full-time, kind of exercises, but more is about her social life. She doesn't have children or a husband at home, so she's out with her friends. She's doing things. Um, painful periods, but overall regular periods. And then you might have that 50-year-old woman, irregular periods, um, still exercising, married. Her kids are older now. They're away in college. Um, but she's really experiencing this difficulty sleep, weight gain, and irregular periods might be what her day looks like. So just I kind of want you all to just kind of picture these different women in your head and think, do I know people like this? Am I like this? Where are, where am I in my life cycle? And how do I feel about that? 
Um, you know, and all this comes back down to hormones and hormones are not evil. I mean, they help regulate so many of our systems. They help with our metabolism. They help with our growth and development, our circadian rhythm and our sleep and wake cycle, our mood, our immune system, fight or flight. Um, and then we all know that they affect, you know, puberty, pregnancy, labor and delivery, breastfeeding, of course, menopause, which I'm talking about now. Um, so they're not all bad. Hormones get a bad rap, but they actually help us function on a day-to-day -day normal level. Um, so just kind of thinking about the phases of your reproductive years, the average age in America for women to start their periods or girls um, is 12.43 years. So if you think about you're starting your period at roughly 12 to 13 years of age, and then we roll into life <laughs> and we do all the things we do between 12 and roughly 40, the average age of perimenopause starts at 43 so I said it could start as early as 35, which it can, um, but the average age is roughly 43 to 47 years, okay? So you've got about, you know, 30 years in there um, between starting your period and then going through these changes. And then menopause, the average age of menopause is 52 years. So let's say you go through menopause, which menopause is it's diagnosed retrospectively. So it means that you go one year without a period or a cycle, one full year. So if you go three months and then have a period, you are not in menopause. You are still in perimenopause. So menopause, like I said, is diagnosed retrospectively. So let's say you're 52 and you, you know, have not had a period for a full year. You still hopefully have a long life ahead of you from 52 to, I mean, I don't know. I kind of want to live to 100, you know, <laughs> so I may have roughly 50 more years of life. So I want to thrive in those years. I don't want to feel old and decrepit or, you know, all the things we think about it as far as old age. So understanding that perimenopause into menopause change is huge for just our outlook in life, I feel like. Um, so I mentioned already just kind of tracking your cycle. There are different phases of our cycle, and I'm not really going to go deep into this um, right now, but just, you know, we all kind of know there's that menstrual phase, and then we lead into ovulation, and that leading up into, we have some rising of our hormones, and then some of them peak in ovulation, and then they kind of start falling a little bit, and some of them peak again toward, as we get towards that menstrual phase, um, and I want you to understand that we function differently during those four phases. Um, so what I want you to really pull from this is that there are times of the month that you are not going to feel as energetic or as strong and really listen to your body during those times and don't push it. Don't put as much on your plate. Don't plan heavy exercise during that time. Think of more restorative exercises. And that time for most women is leading up to our period. So a few days before our period and then a few days into our period is usually the time where we need to really practice that self-care and just nourish our body leading into our period. And then after our period is over, we can start ramping back up our activities. Um, but just really listening to your phases of your cycle. And I think cycle tracking really helps with that because you know when things are coming, but you also know how to kind of work your month. And I don't think we can function as women a full month as if nothing changes because we are cyclical and our energy levels change, our emotions change, our appetite changes. Um, so I think just starting to track that and look at those hormone changes. And this really isn't a talk about hormones, but I just kind of want to throw that in there because I think it's really important for us to understand our period. Also understanding if you are not in that perimenopause age, but you are skipping periods, 
Um, that is not normal. We should have a very normal cycle roughly every 25 to 30 days with the average being 28 day cycle. So if you are missing periods, check in with a healthcare provider and let's see if we can figure out why. It's really a good gauge of health for women if that we are having regular cycles and not having a regular cycle can affect our bone health. And none of us want to have, you know, weak bones. We don't want to fall and break anything or have pain. So that's a big thing. If you're having painful periods um, or absences of periods, please check in with a medical provider. Okay, so I did some market research on Instagram and it is not super scientific. I just threw up some polls because I was curious and I asked my audience, how many of you track your periods? And 83% said yes. So 17% said they were not tracking their periods. Um, I asked how many people have regular periods. 78% of my audience said they were having regular periods and 22% said no. I also asked if how many were in menopause because I'm like, if they're not having regular periods, does that mean you know, that they are younger and something is off with their hormones? Or does that mean they're not that they're already in menopause and not supposed to be having periods. And only 1% of my audience was in menopause. So I feel like this is telling us that 22% of my audience, roughly 22, 20, let's say 20% of my audience is not having regular periods when they should be. So just kind of put that in your mind. And then I also asked how many people were having painful periods. 50% of my audience is having painful periods. Now I get that I'm a pelvic health PT. So maybe people that follow me have some pelvic floor dysfunction. So I kind of want to chalk it up to that, but I also think it's a pretty alarming number that 50% of people are having painful periods. Um, now, pain means something different to everybody, and I do not believe that periods should be painful. Now, your first day, you may have some cramping, and it should, I don't say should, um, sometimes it is uncomfortable, but it should not be described in my book as pain. So I feel like painful periods is kind of a different topic here, but I just wanted to throw this in here because I thought it was a little bit alarming how high that number is. And if you are having painful periods, please reach out to a provider also. Um, but that's just period tracking. So let's kind of roll into this perimenopause. Um, like I said, it's rarely covered in education. And then most of our typical symptoms that we think about happening in menopause are actually happening in perimenopause. By the time we get to menopause, a lot of these symptoms have kind of gone away. So perimenopause lasts about four to 10 years on average, and the median onset is, this study said 47 years, but I have the average age is 43 to 47. Um, a lot of times, the first symptom you, you are going to have is hot flashes or just some sweating at night, maybe. It could be during the day. It could be at any time. Um, but know that you can still get pregnant during this time. We can actually get pregnant until we stop having a monthly cycle regularly. So that menopause where you've gone a year without having a cycle, that's when you are, you're no longer able to get pregnant. So even if you have a period once or twice a year, you are still capable of getting pregnant. Now, is it highly likely? No, but it is possible. Okay. Uh, so perimenopause is composed of up to 200 plus reported symptoms. And the symptoms vary for women to women, okay, woman to woman. So just understanding that your perimenopause phase may not look at all like your best friends. Um, perimenopause, there's not really a clear diagnostic tool for this. A lot of times, if you go to your doctor with symptoms, they'll listen to your symptoms, they'll look at your age, um, 
and then ask about your periods if they're regular or not, and then just kind of put you in that diagnosis. You're in perimenopause. Um, the hormone testing is not very reliable as far as diagnosing perimenopause. So I don't really recommend just going into a doctor and getting a hormone test to find out if you're in perimenopause because our hormones do change. And especially if your periods are irregular, you might not get a super reliable answer like, yes, you are 100% in perimenopause. So what are some of the common symptoms? Um, and a lot of these symptoms we experience with PMS too. So just keep that in mind. But um, hot flashes, breast tenderness, worsening PMS. If you have already been experiencing premenstrual syndrome and now the symptoms are getting worse over time, that might be something to think about. Um, a lower libido or sex drive, fatigue, irregular periods, vaginal dryness, um, discomfort with intercourse, which could come from that vaginal dryness, brain fog, difficulty concentrating, trouble sleeping, mood swings, Urinary leakage and urgency, and urgency just might mean when it's time to go, it is time to go. Um, those are some of the symptoms, but like I said, there are over 200. Some people complain of hair loss or thinning, um, increased allergies, bloating, digestive issues, heart palpitations, um, fatigue, I mentioned that, anxiety, Itching skin is one. A lot of times we just get more dry in general, which can cause not just vaginal dryness, but just overall skin dryness. Um, hot flashes, though. Let's kind of talk about that. That's the most reported symptom of perimenopause, and it roughly happens in 30 to 50% of women. And it varies. You know, sometimes people have very mild, like, oh, I just got a little hot. I need to turn on the fan. And some people get very uncomfortable and need to take a shower, a cold shower, or sit down. And theirs can last for 10 minutes sometimes. But, you know, it's just a vasomotor symptom that has to do with our blood vessels and our thermoregulation in the brain. Um, we're still trying to understand why the hot flashes come. We don't exactly know why. We do know that estrogen is highly involved, but it's not the whole story to hot flashes. So we don't have necessarily a cure for hot flashes, but we have some helpful tips. So if you are starting to get a little overheated, you know, dress in layers. So because one minute you might be hot and then after the hot flash, you might get a cold chill. So make sure you have something you can throw on, you know, keep the air cool. Use fans, especially at night. Try to keep your bedroom cool. A lot of people get these night sweats. So keeping a cool bed. Um, I have a friend who has... I, um, pillow that she has. Um, it's like something you slip in from the freezer, like a cold pack. And um, so her pillow is cool. And I, that sounds miserable to me, but she loves it. Um, but ice water, cold beverages, taking cool showers before you go to bed, um, considering a bigger bed, you know, just to decrease body heat. If you have someone else in your bed and they're hot and it makes you hot having them in there, give yourself a little bit more space. Um, not standing too close to people, like being in crowds, try to just stand apart a little bit from people just because that crowding increases body heat. So just some simple suggestions for hot flashes. Um, I'm not really going to discuss hormone replacement therapy. Um, it's a deep topic. There are so many studies and I feel like it's out of the scope of my practice, but it is right for some people, um, depending on their age and smoking history and medical history, but that is something to talk to your provider about whether hormone replacement therapy might be right for you. There are different options for that. There are topical creams and gels, or there is actual oral pills that you can take, or even suppositories that you can insert that have hormones in them to help support your system as your hormones are changing. So menopause, like I said, the average age is 52 and diagnosed retrospectively, usually after you have gone one full year without a period. 
Sometimes they will use a hormone test to diagnose this. Um, again, not super reliable, but if your FSH or follicle stimulating hormone is elevated above a certain number, that is usually the number that they will use. Um, but a lot of times it's just you haven't had a period for over a year. There are other diagnoses where sometimes we go into menopause before age 40, and this can be due to different causes. It could be medical or surgical. I'm not going to really talk about this today. Sometimes people have primary ovarian insufficiency. Um, I don't really want to talk about the abnormals today. I'm just really digging into what is normal and just to educate you a little bit about perimenopause so you can kind of just be on the lookout at look out for it. Um, some of the helpful organizations and just resources, um, menopause.org is great. If you um, go to Genev, G-E-N-N-E-V.com, they have some great resources and they have a little test that you can take that puts you in what stage of perimenopause you are in. Um, and I think even as far as a zero, like uh, you're not really there, you know, and it gives you some helpful tips and hints on that. Um, also, if you go to www.swanstudy.org, there has been an ongoing study for years now looking at women and just different aspects of their health and during their middle years. And it's, it began in 1994, but it looks also at different racial and ethnic groups from a variety of like just backgrounds and cultures, which I think is great. It's a study that's just multidimensional and really seeing how not just, you know, American women are dealing with the middle years, but women across all backgrounds and racial groups. And I think that is so important for our education and just understanding how we can help support everybody in these um, transitions. There are some quick assessments that your medical provider or your therapist can do that just assess um, symptoms and depression in menopause. I'm not going to go over those now, but they're quick, just self-rated scales that can help you kind of understand where you are on that menopause or perimenopause life area. Um, there are also apps to track your symptoms. Um, they can track everything from your bowel and bladder function and your periods to depression and sleep quality. So um, I found a couple of just free apps. One is called Caria. It's C-A-R-I-A. The other one is Perry, P-E-R-R-Y. But I'm sure if you just go to your apps function on your phone, you can kind of look at these. And if you are feeling like, hey, you're kind of describing me, I might have some of these symptoms. Go ahead and just download the free app and just see and just start tracking symptoms. I'm a big fan of tracking things as long as it doesn't overwhelm you. Um, I like things that are easy to track that I don't have to put a lot of time or, or investment in. And just that way I just know what's going on with my health. Um, but the big areas that we want to focus with as far as why perimenopause is important is as our hormones change, it does affect affect certain systems of our life. And it affects some of them in a big way. So our cardiovascular system, our bone health, our musculoskeletal system, and I'm throwing the pelvic floor in that one, and then our emotional and mental function. So, you know, cardiovascular disease is huge. And I think, you know, cancer gets a pretty big, um, and it's awful, you know, I'm not taking anything away from cancer. I've lost several friends to cancer. I've lost my mom to cancer. So, um, I'm not taking anything away by not focusing on that, but cardiovascular disease is actually the number one killer of women in North America. And it's the number one cause of death globally. Like one in five female deaths occur because of cardiovascular disease. And I'm not trying to be morbid here, but I want you to know that a lot of this can be prevented. And so it's important to understand we 
as women and as really humans have a really high risk of cardiovascular disease. So what can we do to understand that better or to prevent that? And cardiovascular disease, I mean, that's a pretty wide general um, lump category. I mean, it can include anything from hypertension to congenital heart disease to pulmonary embolisms, heart failure, stroke, heart attack, um, heart valve problems, very big um, area. But women present differently with cardiovascular symptoms, and that's what I want to get across to you. Sometimes death is the first symptom. So understanding your cardiac function, you know, getting your blood pressure checked regularly. Now you can buy just little quick blood pressure monitors at Walgreens, and you just slip them on your wrist and press a button. And, you know, that's a great way to just know what your blood pressure is. Um, that way, it's just kind of the first symptom usually for women is, you know, increasing um, blood pressure. So like I said, our symptoms are different. A lot of times men will present to the ER with, you know, chest pain, shortness of breath, and women may mistake a heart attack for heartburn or just pain in their jaw or neck or stomach or shortness of breath, sometimes symptoms of vomiting and nausea. So our symptoms are very different than men and often ignored because we're like, oh, it's just heartburn. And then the next thing we know, we're having a heart attack. So remember what I said earlier, we are not small men. We do um, present differently. So paying attention to your cardiovascular health, knowing what your numbers are, is really an important way to catch things before they get off track. Um, estrogen is huge as far as cardiovascular risk. They look at estrogen as a cardioprotective hormone. And as we transition into perimenopause and menopause, we start losing um, our ability to create estrogen. Um, so our estrogen falls. And so we're losing some of that cardioprotective response that we get from estrogen as we go into this phase of life. Um, so just thinking about what we can do to modify and protect our heart as we go into this stage where we don't have hormones necessarily supporting us, you know, we have certain things we can modify and certain things we have no control over. Like we have no control over our genetic makeup, our ethnicity, aging, and our gender. But what we do have control over is stopping smoking. That's a big one. Um, smoking does affect estrogen. So if you are smoking, it is going to deplete your stores of estrogen. So this is not an anti-smoking talk, but I want you to know if you are smoking, it, it does affect your cardiovascular health. And so trying to find a supportive practitioner or book or group that will help you stop smoking is going to be huge for your cardiovascular health. Um, diabetes, type 2 diabetes is usually modifiable. Or if you already have diabetes, um, keeping that in check, monitoring your blood sugar, um, creating a very supportive diet to help you manage your diabetes and your blood sugar. Um, throwing in here obesity too. Obesity is hard on our heart and just understanding that if you are overweight, what you can do to eat healthy and move your body to try to support your heart in that way. Um, also cholesterol, know your cholesterol numbers and just being as physically active as you can supporting your physical health is huge. Uh, the American Heart Association states that abdominal obesity is can be determined by waist circumference and as a cardiovascular risk marker that is independent of body mass index. So body mass index we have found is not a super reliable source, um, but just measuring your waist circumference, I mean, just taking a tape measure and throwing it around your middle waist, right between your rib cage and your hip bones, 
Um, they're saying that waist size greater than 35 inches is showing a higher risk for heart disease and type 2 diabetes. So that's a critical number. That's something you can easily measure on yourself to know, hey, what's my waist inch ratio or just measurement? And how can I start improving my diet or exercise to help minimize that into helping my heart function? Um, let's see. So Basically, the best things we can do for cardiovascular is exercise and strength training. Uh, another thing is just making sure your back is moving, specifically your upper back by your rib cages. If you can't move your upper back very well, then you can't expand your rib cage to get a good, full, deep breath. And when we are breathing, um, we are also circulating not just oxygen, but blood. So we're increasing our circulation to our extremities to get better feeling, better movement, more strength. So thoracic or upper back mobility and flexibility is really, really important for all women. Um, I always recommend yoga for this, but you don't have to necessarily do yoga, but finding ways to just move your upper back is a great way to help your cardiovascular function. Also mentioned monitoring your blood pressure and getting a device for home to mon monitor your blood pressure and then waist circumference. Um, Physical activity recommendation is greater than 150 minutes a week um, of exercise. And I know for this life stage, a lot of these women are busy. You're running around. You may work full time. You may have kids and they're in multiple activities and sports and school. And you may be volunteering and, you know, super busy stage of life. And sometimes it's hard to get 150 minutes of exercise. What does that look like? Does that look like five 30-minute sessions? Some women don't have time for that in their day between getting up, getting everybody ready and out of the house, getting themselves ready, working a full day, picking everybody up, feeding everybody. But even if you can squeeze in just 10 air squats during a break in your day or walking the dog or while the dog is outside going to the bathroom, doing some lunges, just getting your heart rate up a little bit, any bit of activity. If you have a desk job, just stand up and sit down 10 times, a couple of times a day. You know, just any little bit is going to help. Sure, it would be great to get to the gym for an hour a couple of times a week, but not everybody has that accessible to them. Of course, we all haven't had it super accessible this year with COVID, but now, you know, at least where I am, things are starting to open up. But still, even if things are open, we don't always have time in our day to make that hour fit in with our schedule. So what can you do? How can we be creative to get some movement in with our bodies? Um, Okay, bone health, I'm going to kind of run through this super quick, but our bone is constant, it's a living tissue, it's constantly being replaced and broken down and created, but we usually reach our peak bone mass around age 30. So what we do earlier in our life to build bone health with a healthy diet, weight bearing and exercise, it like puts bone in the bank for us. So after we hit 30, we know we're not replacing that bone as quickly as we are breaking it down. So we really want to think about educating younger people to exercise and eat healthy for their peak bone mass. But then if you are over 30, exercising can still strengthen bone and keep it solid longer. So um, as we age, um, part of this bone reabsorption happens because we lose estrogen too. Estrogen, I know, seems like a terrible hormone, but is actually very supportive in our bodies. It just changes over our lifetime. Um, but, um, sorry, I'm just kind of reading through my notes as I'm going through this. Um, 
yeah, it just says the reduction of of estrogen levels in women at menopause is one of the strongest risk factors for developing osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is silent. You may not know you have it until you break a bone. And usually nobody tests you for osteoporosis until you're about 65. So what is happening in that gap between women going into perimenopause at roughly 40-ish, between 40 and 65, there's this whole 25-year period where nobody's monitoring their bone density And then all of a sudden we tested at 65 and it could be a pretty big deficit in our bone health. So I think if you can recommend a bone density test earlier um, and just see where you are on that scale, especially if you're over 30, that might give you a good hint to what you need to be doing for your health going into menopause. Um, The gold standard test for bone density is the DEXA scan um, and a provider has to do that for you. So, you know, just ask your your uh, primary care provider, if they have a DEXA scan or if they have someone that they can recommend you go to and get one. Um, Some of the risk factors for bone health or affecting bone health is drinking more than three alcoholic beverages per day. Smoking, there it is again. Um, Smoking is one of the biggest modifiable risk factors that we can really make a huge impact in our health. Um, Sedentary lifestyle, so make sure you're using using and moving your body. Um, Vitamin D deficiency, that one is so big. Um, Definitely get your blood work once a year. See where you are in vitamin D. See if you need a supplement. Get outside and walk in the sun. Right now the weather's getting warmer. I know we've dealt with a lot of rain here. It's May in Nashville and we have really gotten a lot of rain, but it's sunny and right now. And if it's beautiful and sunny, even getting outside for a 10-minute walk gets you better vitamin D absorption and you're getting that movement that we recommend. Um, soft drinks, they have phosphoric acid in them that can really deplete bone and being underweight. I know I was talking earlier about being overweight, but being underweight is just as detrimental to our health. A lot of times when you're underweight, you might not have those regular periods that we were talking about, but you also are putting your bone health at risk. So finding a healthy weight is way more important than being skinny. We don't want you to be underweight or overweight. Okay, so we talked about some modifiable risk factors there, just mixing up your activity with good nutrition and stop smoking is kind of the biggest ones. Um, So, you know, you want to weight bear in order to build bone health. Um, Simple exercises that you can kind of incorporate through the day. I already mentioned just kind of some air squats or sitting to stand from your chair. You can go for a short walk. Um, If you're concerned about your balance or if you're just um, endurance is not where it should be you can get some of those walking poles and they will help with balance but if you get the walking poles you're also getting weight bearing through your upper arms when you press down with the pole so I really like the walking poles because you get lower body and upper body um, weight bearing strength training is great or you can just do body weight exercises if you don't have access to weights um, you can do some modified planks or getting on your hands and knees or you know um, doing yoga tree pose is great Um, but yeah definitely Okay. I am deleting a slide while we talk. Okay. So what are the barriers for this age group kind of getting out and exercising? I've already touched on some of this, but I want to review it again. Time. (laughs) That's the biggest barrier. And I did a study on, not a study. I did one of those quick polls on Instagram and asked why women don't exercise. Asked if it was time, money, or experience, just not knowing what to do. And time by far, I can't remember the number, but it was time. So again, incorporating little bits of movement throughout our day is better than no movement. Um, 
money can be a barrier. You know, joining a gym is expensive. Um, buying equipment is expensive. And a lot of times this age group, especially if they have children, a lot of the money is going out to their kids sports. So, or the kids activities, um, birthday parties, <laughs> all the things. So, um, money can be a barrier. So it's free to just stand up and sit down and stand up and sit down over and over. You know, um, sometimes pain is a barrier for this age group. You're getting a little bit older. You haven't been moving as much. Maybe you're achy and, and painful, um, leaking during exercise. Um, some people don't exercise cause they're scared. They're going to pee on themselves. Um, some people just don't know what to do. They're tired. They're, they don't have motivation. Maybe they fear failure. If they join a gym, they may not go. So then they're paying and they know they don't have the time to commit to it. So it's just a, it's a risk to them. So finding out what the barriers are for you, maybe for exercising and then addressing those. And like, if you're having pain, Find a provider who might help you through pain. Is that a physical therapist? Is it a chiropractor? I mean, do you just need a personal trainer because you don't know what to do? Um, I know some of these things cost money. Insurance may cover some of them. Um, but investing in your health is the best investment I think we can make, especially if we want to live a long, healthy life. Um, it's important to invest in your health early before some of these problems become bigger problems. Wouldn't it be nice to pay for a trainer now before you don't have cardiovascular disease instead of later when you are paying for a lot of medications or heart procedures or whatnot, um, really investing in your health now is the best advice that I can give you. Um, if you're having leaking or incontinence, reach out to your pelvic health PT because this is where we thrive and there is no reason, well, there is reason, there are reasons people leak, but it is a very treatable condition and we want you out there moving so we don't want you leaking. Um, the best exercise People ask me this all the time. What is the best exercise? Well, it's the one that you will actually do and stick with. It's something you like. And it's something that there is low access to. So I like to run. I know not everybody's a runner, but for me, I like running because I literally can put on tennis shoes and run out the door. I don't have to drive anywhere. I don't have to do anything fancy. I don't have to walk in a gym. I don't have to like register online. I don't know. I like running, but I know not everybody does. So um, when the best time to work out is, um, some people like to get up in the morning and that way it's already done. And that way there's no excuses throughout the rest of the day. And then they have time for all the other things that they have to do throughout their day. Um, some people like it in the afternoon. They don't like to get up early. They don't like to rush in the mornings. But in the afternoon, they can do a more restorative or exercise with, with the kids, maybe. Or exercise while their kids are at sports. If you drop off your kid to soccer, you can go walk around for you know an hour or whatever. Or go to a gym class or whatever. Some people squeeze it in midday during their lunch break. Um, it does help increase your energy for that second half of your day. Or you can do those just in-between activities that I mentioned. You know, just standing up and sitting down from your desk. Taking a quick walk. Parking at the end of the grocery store. I know that sounds annoying and whatever, but it does give you a few more steps, you know, walking up and down every, I do this. I walk up and down every aisle of the grocery store when I get to go without my kids, because it gives me a short break during my day. Um, some people don't like to exercise. If that's you find something, try different things. We all need to move our bodies. Um, so I definitely encourage you to definitely, if you don't consider yourself someone who likes exercise, at least find ways to get up and move your body throughout the day. Okay. Talked about um, musculoskeletal function and pelvic health. One of the big things during perimenopause that women experience is just a change in their tissue of their vaginal area, um, their vulva, which is your vaginal area there. Um, 
A lot of times they get dryness or atrophy, which is just kind of a shrinking of the muscle tissue there. Um, and this is pretty common. Um, I've seen studies as high as 36 to 53% of women experience this vaginal atrophy. Um, currently, the recommended gold standard for vulvovaginal atrophy is topical estrogen. However, again, this is something you'd have to discuss with your provider because um, sometimes not all people are candidates for estrogen replacement therapy. So, But the symptoms there, you might feel um, vaginal dryness, burning, itching. You might feel irritated, the skin. Um, you might have discomfort or pain with intercourse or just a low libido in general. Um, sometimes people experience um, urinary symptoms with this too. They may have incontinence or just difficult or a slow stream. Um, sometimes uh, urination can be painful. If you have any issues with urination, um, reach out to your medical provider, whether that's a urogyne or an OBGYN or, of course, a pelvic health PT. Um, those are not typical symptoms with vulvovaginal atrophy. Usually they are secondary to something else. So sometimes we can fix that just by a um, very tailored program to help increase the coordination of sh or strength or relaxation of the pelvic floor. Um, but this is something women don't talk about. They don't talk about it with their friends. They don't talk about it with their provider. Um, they think it's just natural part of aging or that maybe they're just too embarrassed to discuss problems down there. So, you know me, none of that is off the table. If you are having any sort of vaginal symptoms, please get those checked out. That is a quality of life issue. If I am dry or itchy, I am not comfortable. And then when I'm not comfortable, I'm not sleeping well. I'm not focused. I'm not wanting to exercise. I may drown my sorrow in chocolate, you know, so definitely don't be scared. There are providers out there who want to help you with this and they are, they hear it all and they are not embarrassed to talk about it. So if you're having any bladder symptoms, bowel function symptoms, sexual symptoms, um, vaginal pain or vulva pain, please bring these up to a provider. Reach out to me on Instagram. I'll help you. I'll help you find someone that you can talk to. There are treatments out there that medical providers can help you with. Again, I already mentioned the hormones. There are energy-based devices like lasers or radio frequency. Again, you have to find out what the side effects of these are and if they are right for you specifically. Um, there are other treatments such as just, like I mentioned, pelvic health PT, understanding your pelvic floor and how to heal and keep that tissue moist and plump. Um, there are different lubricants and moisturizers that you can get off the shelf um, that can really help with the quality of our vaginal tissue and just feeling more comfortable. Um, if you're looking at lubricants or moisturizers, the difference there is a lubricant is used during intercourse. Um, it's very short-term relief. Um, you only use it, like I said, during intercourse or foreplay or whatever you need down there. Um, they are different um, makeups as far as water-based, oil-based, silicone-based. Um, I'm not going to go through it. That's a whole probably podcast. But um, you want to watch out for any sweeteners, flavors, and then, of course, anything that might be toxic to our tissue like glycerin or parabens. So you want to get the – obviously, you're putting in a sensitive area. So you want to get the most gentle and um, healthy, non-toxic <laughs> lubricant that you can find. Um, as far as moisturizers, these um, have a longer lasting effect. So you can actually put it on and wear it all day. And um, it just adheres to your vaginal wall and helps your tissues kind of retain water and increases that moisture of your mucosa of your vaginal wall. So a moisturizer would be more like you're not 
necessarily having sex right now, but you feel dry. So you put it on maybe with a panty liner and wear it throughout your day just to increase your comfort there. Um, there have been some interesting studies that show that sexual activity actually increases our vaginal mucosa and our plumpness of our vaginal tissue and decreasing the atrophy. And one study that found that women who participated at least three times a month had less um, vaginal atrophy than people who did not. So I think that was really interesting. And another, and that study didn't really um, break it down into what they meant by sexual activity. There was another study that they said that sexual activity included coitus, necking, and or masturbation. And they just said that the women who participated in those activities had a higher related quality of life and greater resilience. So just kind of interesting to know about that. Um, but just trying to empower women that, you know, sex is a natural part of life. And if it is something you want to participate in, but it is painful for you, try a good lubricant or reach out to your medical professional and see if you do have some atrophy down there and if there is something that might can help. Um, I had mentioned earlier about smoking and how that affects our estrogen. So it also affects our microbiome and our vaginal cavity and our blood flow and circulation down there. So smoking can affect how your vaginal or vulvar area feels. So again, here I am for another plug for stopping smoking. If it affects your estrogen and affects your blood flow down to your vaginal wall, and now you have painful intercourse, that that's something you might want to look at. That might be the motivator for you. If it's not your heart health or your bone health, it might be your vaginal health and your quality of life or sex life and how that affects that. Okay, last topic of um, just kind of things we want to think about as far as perimenopause is our emotional and mental symptoms. And this could be brain fog, depression, anxiety, irritability, poor sleep. Um, and again, I'm just going to go back to just, you know, lifestyle changes for this. Um, stress management is huge. Um, getting adequate sleep. I really feel like we have to double down on our self-care in this stage of life. I almost feel like all stages of life, we have to double down on our self-care. But it's really important to take care of ourselves and, and really find out what brings us joy and what zaps our energy and trying to do more things that bring us joy. And that's different for everyone. For some people, that is exercise. For some people, that's reading a book. But just trying to decrease your stress and improve your emotional outlook, outlook can be hugely supportive in this area. Again, what else boosts our emotional um, and mental you know, state? It's physical activity. Um, so there was a study by Bondarev that said that women with a high physical activity, they experience less depressive symptoms um, than women who didn't have um Sorry, I'm changing some letters in my slides here. The women who didn't participate in physical activity for pre- and postmenopausal women, that was the group that was looked at. So if you are exercising, you have less depressive symptoms than women who are not exercising. So, you know, just finding ways to move our body. And I know it's a time crunch, but let's do it. And then as far as what are we doing for to support our sleep? Are we getting up and going to the bathroom in the middle of the night and that's what's affecting our sleep? Well, maybe it's time to reach out to that public health PT to work on that you know, we should be able to hold it during the middle of the night, or at least getting up a once per night is pretty typical for this age group. Um, so if you're going more than once a night, reach out. There is help for that. Um, turning off your devices about two hours before you go to bed. 
um, cooling, and that means everything. That means your phone, your TV, putting them away from you. I mean, everything completely off. Sleeping in a cool room, making sure you have a good mattress. That's a big one. They say on average our mattresses should be replaced every 10 years. Um, and they're expensive. <laughs> mattresses are so expensive. So I know it's not fun to replace them, but if you have a poor mattress, that aids in your you know discomfort, your inability to feel good when you wake up or rested because you might have back pain, back pain or neck pain. Um, so yeah, and, and I'm not going to recommend good mattresses. There's a million out there and I bought mine about four years ago and I guarantee you there are better ones on the market now. And I tried to research, you know, organic, good material, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's probably better ones out there. I mean, they change quickly and there are so many now that are um, supportive and good. And you kind of have to find one that works for your body. Um, so a lot of them will have 30 day money back guarantees. So try it for 30 days. If you hate it, don't keep it. They're expensive. Send it back. Um, also uh, avoiding alcohol before bed. Um, and then heavy meals, your body has to digest that, which can be really disruptive for your sleep. So try to eat, you know, a couple of hours before you go to bed. Um, don't go to bed with a full stomach. Don't drink a bunch of alcohol before you go to bed. Um, so just hitting the, the big things here walking, exercising, eating heart-healthy foods, um, moving your body, taking your blood pressure, um, knowing your waist circumference, knowing your vital signs, what's your cholesterol, what is your, again, blood pressure, quit smoking, decrease your alcohol intake, um, modulate your stress, you know, find ways to in interject self-care. Some stress we have no control over, especially this year, um, has been really stressful for many of us. But find ways that you can control, you know, get out for that walk in the sun for 10 minutes, pet a dog. <laughs> I love doing that. Um, you know, read a book, um, even just sipping a cup of hot tea. I mean, that doesn't take a lot of time. If you love just drinking a hot beverage, that is not something that's going to take a ton of time out of your life. You know, go buy that hot tea next time you're at the grocery store or wherever you get your tea from, order it online, and then um, just enjoy a hot tea at night or in the morning or whenever you like to do it. But Keeping you moving, that's kind of the best one that I have for you. So any questions you have about perimenopause or menopause, um, reach out to me. I love educating people through this life stage. I think it's really important going into this life stage as healthy as we can so we don't have as many symptoms or injuries, you know, as we are getting older. I mean, I want to, I'm 44, I have three children and my youngest is five. So I don't want to be, you know, sitting on the sidelines as she's running around in 10 years at 15. She probably won't want to talk to me. But, you know, when she's nine, I want to be out and playing with her still. I re it's really important to me to be as healthy as I can as long as I can. And I don't want to have pain. Who wants that? I don't want to have a fracture. I broke my arm. Oh, I was probably 25, 26. I don't remember. But I broke my arm snowboarding. And that is really painful. That's the only time I've ever broken a bone other than like a toe or something. And a fracture is very painful. So supporting your bone health and keeping your bones solid and healthy is a great way to avoid pain too. So, I mean, mine was traumatic. Like I probably couldn't have avoided that fall. I went to Gatlinburg and snowboarded. Don't recommend that either. It's straight ice. Go somewhere that has real snow. But um, yeah, keeping our bones healthy is huge. We don't, we want to avoid pain. You know, talking to all your friends, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, envision how you want to look as you age. What does that look like to you? And how can we turn that into something positive? You know, you're 20 and you're not thinking about what you're going to be like, at your, you know, in your 60s. I get that. 
but at least try to, you know, eat healthy and exercise in your 20s. In your 30s, you may want to start thinking about how you want your life to look as you get older. You know, in your 40s, you're probably starting to see your parents age and it might be showing you how you do or you don't want to be when you're that age, you know, and just start living your life like that. Envision how you want to live your life and make that happen, even if it's small baby steps, even if it's just going for one walk for five minutes once a week. That's better than nothing. And then start incorporating that and building that. If you, you know, fall off the wagon and, you know, you're doing great with your exercise and then life happens and you stop, that's okay. Just pick back up. Even if it's going back to that five minutes a day, just get back to where you were. Um, Oh, make sure you have a good support space, a good supportive function. That's not what I want to say. Make sure you have a good support system, whether that is friends, family, a partner, Um, How else can you support your life? If you are busy, does it mean hiring a housekeeper so you can have more time to get out and walk or, you know, ordering some of these meal plan services, Um, you know, having a sitter come once a week even so you can go out and do an exercise. I mean, just how can you support trade off, you know, with your friends? Like I'll watch your kids this day if you want to walk or have a play date. And while the kids are playing, y'all do a little 20 minute workout in the yard or together or just take a little walk, everybody, you know, just finding ways to incorporate exercise in your life, but finding a good support system to help nourish that too, because we can't do it all alone. We need other people to help keep us accountable and also help, you know, offload some of our stress there. So talking positive to yourself, I know it's super woo-woo, but I'm big into this. You know, my body is strong. My mind is capable. I am evolving just as I'm supposed to be doing. As you age, it's natural. It's a natural part of getting older and living and not dying is getting older. So, you know, let's spin that into something positive. I am evolving just as I'm supposed to be doing. Grateful for living a life very full in every stage that I'm going through. Um, I know it's woo-woo. Even as I say it out loud, I'm like, people are going to think I'm crazy. But it really is amazing when we talk positive to ourselves, how much of an impact that can make in our day-to-day life. If you are concerned about just aging, get out a journal and just write about your fears related to it or your hopes related to it. Sometimes just getting it out on paper can be really helpful. Um, So just empower yourself, empower everyone you know. you know, aging is a natural part of life. Perimenopause is not the end of the world. Um, usually when we get to this stage, we are more confident in ourselves. We are a little bit, hopefully more financially secure. It's questionable after 2020, but normally, you know, we would be, um, we're a little bit more decisive in our lives. We kind of know what we want, where we're going. And I think it really is a great, great place to go. Um, you know, we're seeing more women in positions of power, we're seeing more women business owners, more women in government. So I think we do have some healthy role models to look at who are living high quality lives. Not that you have to aspire to being something like that, but it is nice when you see older women in good roles that are healthy. You know, just just know that not every woman out there is unhealthy or in, in pain or sweating all the time. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that is my spin on perimenopause and menopause. I'd love to hear some feedback on this. If you have any, reach out to me at Amy at the Pelvic Yogi, and I will talk to you soon.